Thank you for joining us for the final episode of 2017. You might wonder why we're calling it a Christmas miracle. Well, there's actually quite a number of reasons why. We started looking ahead to 2018, and it's shaping up to be a pretty big year. We formed a team of researchers and guest writers that we affectionately call the Cleaners. I can tell you that we have about 11 cases that are actively being worked on that we'll be bringing to you in the new year. Now, I've got to be completely honest with you. Never for a second did I think for a moment last year around this time, which is when I started writing our first episode, that the show would turn into what it has today. There are so many people that have influenced and guided us along the way. And of course, we realize we'd never be where we are today if it wasn't for you, our listeners. Thank you so much for not only subscribing, but for spreading the word about our show, giving us feedback, interacting with us on social media, and for all the people that have financially supported the Minds of Madness. From Beck and I, we want to say a huge thank you. In the spirit of giving, we wanted to do something really special for you for the holidays. We decided to contact some of the incredible hosts of some of the podcasts that inspired me as a listener to start my own podcast, as well as a few that have been a tremendous support to us. We wanted to take this opportunity to pay tribute to them, and in doing so, also create an experience of a lifetime for you, an entire episode well, you'll hear some of the most fantastic true crime podcasts out there talking about their most memorable and chilling cases. I'm going to be presenting each podcast in the chronological order that I discovered them and share with you a bit of my journey to becoming a podcaster along the way. Remember, I was once a listener just like you. You might recall at the beginning of my very first episode where I talked about some of the true crime shows that got me hooked on podcasts. Serial was definitely the first. A podcast that followed the story of Adnan Syed, a young man who was accused and convicted of murdering his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. In the first episode of Serial, I learned that Adnan's case was brought to the Serial team by a close family friend by the name of Rabia Chaudhry, who becomes a key person in the story. Once I'd made my way through all the serial episodes, I found myself wanting to learn more of Adnan's case, and I was thrilled to discover that Rabia had started her own podcast called Undisclosed with Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Recently, we reached out to Rabia, and we were so grateful that she took the time to speak with us. We asked Rabia to tell us what case had impacted her the most, and I think most of you can guess. The case that's most impacted me in any of this work, for any of you who listen to Serial, the case that kind of started it all for me, and that is the case of the state of Maryland versus Adnan Sayed. I am connected to the case because I've known Adnan since he was 13 years old. As a family friend, big sister figure, advocating for him for many years, and I took the story to Sarah Koenig. A brief overview of what happened is that in January of 1999, a young girl named Heyman Lee left her high school in Woodlawn, Maryland and disappeared after school. Her body was found about a month later in a park. She had been strangled. 
About another three weeks later, they arrested Adnan. The two seminal characters, obviously, in the case are the victim, Heyman Lee, and the defendant, Adnan Sayed, who were both high school students. They were both about to graduate from high school. And Adnan is my younger brother's best friend, so I knew him because he, he was just my brother's friend and he would hang out and he was very well known in the community as just a really sweet kid. He was arrested and charged with a murder. The state had um, no real forensic evidence, but they found a witness. His name was Jay Wilds, who knew kind of this group of high school kids. He testified against Adnan as a co-defendant and said that Adnan told him he killed her and then he helped bury Heyman Lee with Adnan. Now, Heyman had a boyfriend at the time. Adnan was an ex-boyfriend. They had broken up a couple of months earlier, but she was seeing somebody else, and he should have been investigated more thoroughly, and he wasn't. Then another really important, I would say, person in the case was Adnan's attorney, Christina Gutierrez, who was an incredible attorney in her time. We had no idea at the time, but she was very, very sick. I could tell something was very wrong with her, but I didn't know what was going on, but she was paid six figures. We thought she was the best lawyer in the county, and she was on her last legs. She died and was disbarred not long after this case. She failed to contact an alibi witness that Adnan had told her about, Asia McLean. And Asia was somebody that was also featured in the serial podcast. Asia, after all these years, has come back into the case, and almost two years ago now, testified at a new appeal hearing for Adnan, saying she was with him after school at the time that Heyman Lee disappeared. His conviction was actually thrown out a year and a half ago, and it was overturned, and he was ordered a new trial, but the state appealed it. And so we are now waiting for the results of that appeal, and they could come, really, any day now. I mean, what impacted me about this is, I mean, of course, having a personal connection is one thing, but I was a law student when this was happening. And, you know, I'm going to law school thinking very idealistic about the law, about justice, about process, um, about due process. And as I'm in law school, I'm experiencing like an incredible miscarriage of justice. And he, he was just a kid. He was like 17 who was arrested. It's so clear. It was so clear to me that he didn't know what was happening. The community, his parents didn't know what was happening. None of us knew how to handle the situation. It wasn't until that moment that I realized how the deck is stacked against defendants, how much can go wrong. Even people who have like really great resources, like I said, he, this is somebody who, his family wasn't rich, but the community had a lot of money. I mean, they put together a lot of money and there's a lot of support. And so it was just watching it just kind of unfold in real time, being there through the whole thing and being completely helpless. I don't think of myself as somebody who's like a helpless person, but in that situation, I felt completely like nothing was in our hands. So just seeing that and understanding how this happens over and over again to other people, like that's, that was the most impactful thing. Just a sense of the power of the state against an individual. That's what you're dealing with. The entire power of the state, the prosecutorial and police power against one little person. It's really overwhelming. I published a book last year with Adnan. He contributed to it called Adnan Story. It became a New York Times bestseller. It did very well. It was critically reviewed. And in the book, I lay out a very specific theory of what I think might have happened to Heyman Lee on the day she disappeared. You know, a lot of people who listen to Serial, I mean, there's hundreds of millions. 
There are a lot of unanswered questions. A lot happened after Serial. There was a lot more investigation, a lot that we found on Undisclosed, which is my podcast with two other attorneys. And then there's stuff uh, beyond that podcast also that I included in the book and just brought together a lot of missing pieces. And one important piece of evidence that Serial never looked at, which in a murder case you kind of need to, is the autopsy. What is the victim's body telling you? I do a real thorough examination of that in the book, along with just some other evidence that I think suggests who a really a strong contender for a suspect might be in this in this murder. After binging on Undisclosed, it was then truth and justice. I soon began to realize that my day wasn't complete unless I was able to listen to a few podcasts over the course of the day. I'd listen to podcasts on my commute to work and then would have my earbuds in for the majority of the day. I became so fascinated hearing stories about true crime and I needed to find more shows. The tab in the Stitcher app, titled Discover, soon became the number one tool that I used to find new shows. One podcast that was repeatedly suggested was Generation Y. I had noticed it a few times and finally decided to add it to my tiny but growing subscription list. I immediately liked the format of the show and appreciated hearing cases talked about in a conversational manner between Justin and Aaron, and I could tell that each story had been carefully researched. I was also pleasantly surprised to realize that there was also a healthy backlog of episodes. After becoming a podcast host, Beck and I have both had the opportunity to interact with Aaron and Justin. Not only do they produce an amazing show, they are two of the nicest guys who've taken the time to be an incredible resource of advice and support to us, and we are so appreciative of them. Now here's Justin talking about a case that he literally took home with him. In all of our 261 episodes we've recorded, I've become very numb to hearing about these cases once you do them over and over again. And it sucks because I don't want to lose my humanity. I want to care. I want to sympathize with, with everyone involved. You grow a little numb to it and you have to, to be able to research the case and, and deliver. But when I was researching for Richard Ramirez, Unlike other serial killers that prey on victims that are out in public, try to coax you into their car, try to pick up a sex worker, try to do other things. Well, I'm, I'm a guy. I'm not in bad places. So none of them really scared me all that much. And then along comes Richard Ramirez, where his M.O. is to break into your house, stay in the house, and get low to the ground and wait for his eyes to adjust to the darkness, wait for the house to settle, and then attack. Or he just follows you into your house. He just breaks in. And if there's a man in the house, he immediately kills them. And then... He goes after the woman, and if you're lucky, he kills both of you instantly. If you're not lucky, he's going to rape and torture the woman for hours and hours. 
And that whole bridging of safety was gone. Because this guy is a monster that comes into your home. He comes to you. You don't go to him. You don't find yourself in a bad situation. You're not out and about in public. He comes to you. And that was when it finally really bothered me what this, uh, you know, what Richard Ramirez did and his M.O. And, and I'm not trying to say that other people put their lives in danger or make themselves a target. Not that at all. Just I personally have never found myself in a situation where I felt things were shady. But when you're in the comfort and the safety of your own home, you don't expect that. And he really jarred me. The week that I was researching and studying leading up to the podcast, in the middle of the night, I would hear noise and I'd wake up and I wouldn't get back to sleep. I would have to find out what that noise was. I would have to go listen. And one night it was so bad that I actually got up and walked out into the living room and sat on the couch and started to memorize and become familiar with every single noise in my house, whether it be when the compressor on the refrigerator kicked off or when uh, a pipe would bump in the night or when the air conditioner would kick off or all the noises that a washer and dryer would make. And I had to know which each one of those noises were before I felt comfortable again. And it took hours. I don't think that normally people that listen to these podcasts, I don't know if they have that kind of reaction, but it really got to me. And I had to center myself and know everything that was going on in my house so I would feel comfortable going back to bed and going to sleep. Otherwise, I, I wasn't going to. The dogs aren't barking. No one's alerting to anything. But I'm still so freaked out, so afraid that Richard Ramirez or somebody's coming into my home. When I was a kid, it was always the cool thing to be interested in the darkness or something that was totally outside of society. And everybody was watching the movie Helter Skelter or reading Ted Bundy books. And I saw uh, Richard Ramirez on the TV when I was a child and his escapades across California and all the other states. And I was just interested in how can somebody behave that way? How can somebody murder so many people and not feel a thing? So it's always the focus was on the serial killer and his mind. And as I grew up and started doing my podcast and learning more and more about it, it, it really isn't about the serial killer anymore. It's really, they're just the monster behind the madness. His victim count was around 30, but you can, you can add to that because he had victims probably before he went on his rampage. There's just some questions there. As a lot of serial killers go, they don't want to give up all of their victims because they have this sick, twisted thing in their head that their victims belong to them. 
so they're not going to always share every single detail. When it comes to serial killers, I always have this abstract nature versus nurture scale in my head. And I absolutely believe that serial killers are both. There's always going to be some nature and some nurture. So the nature is they're wired wrong. But if they don't have a traumatic life or if nothing goes wrong in their life, they can be wired to kill people but go through their entire life without doing that. Meanwhile, I think some people are wired just fine, but they go through such traumatic experiences that it turns them into a monster. When it comes to Richard Ramirez, I think he's kind of in the middle. I think he was definitely wired wrong, and he absolutely had bad influences growing up, whether it be his brother coming back from the war, being exposed to his family member killing his wife right in front of him. There's a lot of situations that Richard was exposed to that showed him that there's no value to human life. Meanwhile, you have his mother either taking specific prescription drugs or living close to a nuclear power plant or something to that effect while she was pregnant with Richard. And you can you start to factor all those things in and you have to decide is that what created this guy? With Richard, I think it's definitely half and half, half nurture, half nature. After catching up with all the Gen Y episodes, I found myself really wanting to listen to a variety of shows. I can't really remember the exact order in which my rapid list of true crime shows began to expand, but I know a few of them included Mysterious Circumstances with Justin Rimmel, Insight with Charlie and Allie, The Trail Went Cold with Robin Warder, True Crime Island with Cambo, Felon with Broderick, and then I discovered True Crime Garage. True Crime Garage was another podcast that had a sizable catalog of shows to binge on. So for the next several days, I listened nonstop to Nick and the Captain. Their show was so well produced. From their in-depth knowledge of each case, to the impeccable quality of their sound production, the extra elements of news clips embedded into music scores that the Captain himself had composed was very impressive and I make sure never to miss an episode on release day. Now here's the captain, talking about a particular case that they covered that he's been fascinated with for years. Probably the one that has stuck with me the longest and probably hit me over the face like a a shovel right away was the West Memphis 3 case. Three boys went missing. Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore. They were murdered, they were possibly tortured, they were tied up, they were found in a body of water. They charged three teenagers with this crime, and basically it was satanic panic. 
HBO ended up making a documentary about the murders and the trial. That's how everybody ended up knowing who the West Memphis Three were. And that would be Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin. There's a lot of sides of this story that I just identify with. When people first started talking about this case, I was in high school, so I could really identify with the West Memphis Three. I could also remember what it was like to be eight years old riding my bike around town. And what would that be like if teenagers came up to me? They were responsible for their murders. Because of where the crimes took place, so much of the evidence was washed away. There's evidence that the victims were mutilated, possibly sexually. But there's more evidence now that points out that that was probably done post-mortem and was probably inflicted by an animal. So that kind of changes the motivation and the context in which they were murdered. When we started the podcast, it was as simple as we would hang out in his garage and we'd always end up either talking about music or some weird conspiracy, but always true crime. And we'd always get onto these subjects. And the West Memphis Three was a case that if I heard something, you know, driving home on coast to coast or he saw a different documentary or a different interview. I mean, we've been talking about this case since 96 And I call it a red light case. So what that means to me is when you're sitting at a red light and it just pops into your head. And the reason why it pops into my head is because you have a situation where you have three boys that were murdered, but you also have three teenage boys that were charged with the crime. One ended up on death row. Later, the state releases them on an Alfred plead, which is kind of unheard of. And they're they're released into the public. So basically you got three teenage boys that admit to these brutal murders. But our state is going to let them out. And there's a lot of controversy because before the documentary, everybody thought they were guilty. After the documentary, the main three documentaries, everybody started going, they're innocent. And that's how people pushed people like Eddie Vedder and a bunch of other celebrities. The singer of the Dixie Chicks. I think Johnny Depp got involved. And they rally around all these people to get them out of jail. Well, once they got out of jail, there was actually a weird backlash where the tide started turning again. So it went from they're guilty of sin, these boys deserve to die, to they're innocent, let them out, to a little bit of a backlash of, well, maybe maybe they did do it. And so for me, I get fixated on one or two points of a case, and I'll just sit there at the red light and randomly... It'll pop into my head. The state basically rested on the idea that this was some kind of satanic crime. I don't think there's much evidence to back that up. I think there's a lot of leads that they didn't follow. 
The Devil's Knot, which is an amazing book, and you can learn so much about this case if you read that. But they try to point the fingers all the time at uh, Mark Byers. So now you're accusing somebody that has taken time out of his life to raise a child as his own. It's a very tough case. I mean, I can't get over the fact that there was a man covered in blood in a restaurant and there was evidence that wasn't taken. I have a really hard time getting over that. And that would point to somebody else. The way these crimes took place is very odd because I don't know if these crimes could have taken place with one suspect. I think it would have to be multiple suspects. And there's obviously some physical evidence linking the other stepfather, Terry Hobbs, and his alibi is not really solid. But the problem is, is one piece of evidence, one strand of hair on these children that were known to be in his house, it's hard to pinpoint all the evidence towards Terry Hobbs. As far as the West Memphis Three, Jesse Miss Kelly ended up multiple times confessing to the murders he has such a low IQ I don't really think he understood what he was doing or what the repercussions were going to be and I think Jason Baldwin was just best friends with this quote unquote weirdo when it comes down to the West Memphis 3 do I think the 3 were involved I don't think so Next, you'll hear from Nick, who talks about a case they covered that really hit close to home for him in Ohio. Out of all the cases that I've covered, the one that has stuck with me maybe the most out of all of them is the unsolved murder of John Anthony Muncie, who was 15 years old when he was killed. He went by the name Tony. That's what his friends called him, and that's what he went by. He would have been upset with anybody had they called him John. I kind of feel like sometimes he's with me. I feel bad for Tony and his memory when I read these old newspaper articles from 1983. He's often referred to as this troubled youth, that he was involved in drugs. There's a lot of assumptions made about him and his life. His story is, it's a short one, and it's a bit sad. On Saturday, October 15th, 1983, he was last seen leaving his parents' home. He lived on the east side of Columbus, Ohio. There are some disputes as to if this was in fact the last time that he was seen. He had last left his parents' home asking his father for some money to ride the bus. He wanted to take the bus out to the west side of Columbus to visit his girlfriend. His girlfriend and her parents say that he never arrived. His body was found the following day, on Sunday, October 16, 1983. The body was found in four or five trash bags. 
He was killed with multiple stab wounds to the back. His arms had been cut off at the elbows and the shoulders. It appeared to the medical examiner that somebody may have tried to cut off his head and legs. There was absolutely no blood left in the body. This case has remained unsolved to this day. There's been several suspects in this case. And when I say several suspects, there have been people that were presented to law enforcement either by the family or by the media. And these people were considered to be suspects. They were looked at by law enforcement at the time. However, they've never made an arrest or charged anybody with his murder. Two of them, actually, that were spoken to about this case were convicted serial killers. And then the third man that has been considered a longtime suspect is somebody that has some severe mental health issues. He's an extremely violent individual. He remains locked up to this day for another murder that he committed. I've followed true crime for over 20 years, and I became fascinated with unsolved crimes in Ohio, specifically in the Franklin County and Columbus area. I did not know Tony Muncy, even though I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. He was, he was much older than me. I didn't know about this crime back in 1983. I was a very young child at the time. However, this was one of the cases that I came across when I was looking at unsolved cold cases in Columbus, Ohio. And the reason why this one stuck with me, I think is because obviously this was a horrific murder and horrific death. The newspapers referred to Tony as a troubled youth. And I think when a lot of people hear that, they think of someone who's breaking the law, thinking of somebody who may be a menace to society. When they say troubled youth, that's a stretch. We're talking about a 15-year-old boy that was murdered. He started getting into trouble when he was 13 and 14. And these were very minor, very teenager-type things. He was skipping class. He would get caught smoking. He would stay out too late. His parents didn't always know where he was. This was not a kid that was out breaking the law. This was not a kid that was even doing petty crimes. He reminds me, Tony reminds me a bit of myself at those ages. I, I may have you know, gotten in trouble with teachers and with my parents, but I was not the type to go out and get in trouble with the law. I think that those suspects that I mentioned I think those people became suspects because these were people that were involved in drugs. These were people that were involved in misdealings that were breaking the law. And I think because the way that Tony's life was reported in the newspaper, that the media made the leap that these guys could be possible suspects. There's a chance, there's a small, small chance that two of the three are good suspects. What I think actually happened with Tony, I think there's somebody much closer to him 
that probably murdered him and left him his body cut up and on the side of the road in October 16, 1983. And I don't think that his murder had anything to do with drugs or robbery or any type of those misdealings as was reported in the papers at the time. That's the reason why this case has stuck with me. next podcast I found was The Vanished with Marissa Jones. By this time, I'd become a self-proclaimed true crime podcast junkie. I would listen all day at work and even started listening while I was making dinner. But because I was listening to shows without headphones on and we have a house full of kids, I really had to be mindful of the subject matter I was listening to. And The Vanished soon became one of my go-to shows while cooking in the kitchen. Marissa's voice has kept me company while I've made several meals for my family. She's also become someone we've really connected with. She's an extremely compassionate person, and it comes across in all the stories she covers. Here's Marissa telling us about the one case that has really touched her heart. The episode that I would say affected me the most was one that I covered very recently. It was the disappearance of Joanna and Cherise Clark. They disappeared from Baltimore, Maryland earlier this year. It's a mother-daughter disappearance, which we don't usually see very often. It's a strange case because they disappeared on the same day, but they disappeared at different times. When I first was asked to cover their case, I went online and I was reading everything that I could, and it looked like such a mystery. I called Joanna's mother, who would be Sharice's grandmother, and she gave me a whole other story that wasn't in the news, and I wasn't prepared for it. I had no idea what I was about to hear. It ended up being a case of domestic abuse that had been going on for many, many years. Joanna had tried to leave this man on multiple occasions. She had six other kids besides Charisse, and he wouldn't work. He would only ever keep jobs for three months at a time. She was a very hard worker. She worked every day. She got up at five o'clock and took the train down. So she needed him to watch those six younger children while she worked. Shortly before they disappeared, he made a sexual comment to Sharice, who was the 15-year-old daughter and the only child that isn't his child. And that was when Joanna had it. She was done. She was kicking him out. And the day that they disappeared was the day that she went and took all of his stuff and put it outside for 
him to come pick it up. She wasn't home, but Sharice was there watching the children. And something happened because Sharice disappeared. And then Joanna came home around 11, 11, 15 that night. And that's when she disappeared. There's some belief out there that maybe he did something to Sharice and then waited for Joanna to come home and then did something with her. Nobody really knows for sure. This was over the weekend that they went missing. It was a Saturday. So Monday rolls around and Joanna didn't show up for work. She never would no call, no show. She worked with her aunt and her aunt immediately became concerned. What her mom told me and what her friend told me was if in the past, because he was so controlling, so possessive, if she didn't show up, if she was late, you know, if she went out with a friend, he would be calling her. He even used to follow her, stalk her. Just going down to the store on the corner, he would follow her. And so it's very out of character for him to have them go missing and him not not even call a friend. That, to me, is so telling whenever that happens. Saturday night, he had Sunday, Monday, Tuesday to clean up anything. I know... The friend thinks that maybe he put them in the trash because by the time that Jessica got out there, she actually started looking in the dumpsters around the area, and she said they were all almost completely empty. So she believes that the trash had already been picked up by that day. She called around, and she found out that their trash got shipped out of state to the Philadelphia area, which is where I live, and that the police had contacted the landfill too and inquired about it, but they have to have a warrant to search a landfill and they've never gotten one to search that landfill. Nobody knows if that's where they are or if they could be somewhere else. Now, he didn't have a vehicle, so... I guess that's why people immediately thought about the trash. Because they searched the apartment on three occasions, the police have, and they've never found any evidence of a crime. So they've never come up with any blood evidence or anything like that. They believe that he probably strangled them or did something that wouldn't leave physical evidence behind. The problem is that Baltimore has a really high crime rate. It's not that the police didn't do anything. It just seems like they have so much that they're working on that they don't have the resources to really put into solving this case. I would be working on this episode and just start crying and have to put my headphones down and walk away because those six other children that Joanna has are currently split up in foster care. They're in two different homes. They're between the ages of 2 and 10. For six children, this is their reality. 
and we're getting ready to celebrate the holidays and I'm spending this time with my children and enjoying them. And just to think of what's going on in their little minds, wondering where their mom is, where their sister is, wondering why they're split up and they're not together. It's really sad. It's really, really sad. It just breaks your heart thinking about these little kids. After discovering The Vanished, I found Sword and Scale and Case File. I'd pretty much devoted all of my listening time to those two podcasts, and it was then that I really seriously contemplated starting my own podcast, and I'm pretty sure you can hear the influence that those two shows had on the minds of madness. We reached out to both Sword and Scale and Case File for this episode, knowing it was a shot in the dark with their immense busy schedules. At the moment, Mike from Sword and Scale has quite a lot of projects on the go, and it just didn't work out. However, Casefile's head researcher and writer, Anna, was able to get our request to the host of Casefile. Here's the host of Casefile, talking about the one case that left a lasting impression on him. The one case we've covered which had the greatest impact on me personally was the series we did this year on the unsolved case, The East Area Rapist and Original Night Stalker. Between 1976 and 1986, over 45 women were raped in their homes and 12 people were murdered. The crime started in Northern California and then moved down to Southern California. All were committed by the same man. He was seen numerous times and possibly almost caught on a few occasions, but in the end, he evaded everyone. It didn't matter how old you were, what locks you had on your doors or windows, if you were alone or in bed with your partner. If he wanted to get in, he would. And as he progressed, so too did the level of fear as his crimes escalated to murder. No one was safe. No one knew when or where he would strike. And there was literally no way to protect yourself. He would even break in beforehand, hide your gun, leave, then break back in later when you were home. This was the first and only time during any research or production of case file ever that I had to physically get up and make sure my doors and windows were locked. While deep into the production of this series, I felt like I was back there in a way. I was thinking about it morning, noon and night. I was even dreaming about it or having nightmares. Despite having heard brief things about the case beforehand, I didn't realise just how extensive and how frightening this series of crimes was. With a solid template of the show I wanted to create in mind, I started listening to every true crime podcast I could find. I soon came across Court Junkie, which was one of my final inspirations for my show's format. Jillian's use of court recordings, 
media clips, her style of narration, even her theme music, coupled with her compassion for victims, were all elements that I really admired. We've gotten to know Jillian on a personal level, and I have to say she's an extremely genuine person. The integrity and compassion she embodies in her show extends far beyond that, and into every aspect of her life. We were so pleased to have the opportunity to speak with her. When I think about what case I've covered that has affected me the most, I actually have quite a few that come to mind. But the one I want to tell you guys about is a case that I covered in, I believe it was episode four, and that is the case of a college student named Praveen Verghese. Praveen was 19 years old, going to school at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. And in February of 2014, after a night out with friends, Praveen mysteriously just disappeared, vanished. Friends, family, no one could get a hold of him. So massive search parties formed in the town to help find him. A few days later, his body was found in a wooded area. An autopsy was done, and Praveen's family, who was from Chicago, which is about five or so hours away, was told that he had died of hypothermia. Investigators held this big press conference where they pronounced his name wrong, they were calling him Praven, and said that they believed that he had just wandered into the woods, became disoriented, and then succumbed to hypothermia. And they strongly implied that he may have been even using drugs or that he was really drunk. And his family thought that this whole thing was really strange. How would their very healthy 19-year-old son get lost in the woods in the middle of the night and not be able to get out? Well, when they saw Praveen's body as they were preparing to bury him, they were shocked. And I spoke to Praveen's mom, whose name is Lovely, in my episode, And she described seeing bruises on her son's face. And these bruises were so bad that there was even a dent on his forehead. Now, Lovely works in the medical field, and she said that she thought immediately that something else had happened, that there was definitely more to this story than just an accidental death. So the family pushed for answers. They hired an independent forensic pathologist from Chicago to conduct another autopsy. And these results were a bit different. It did show that Praveen had in fact suffered from hypothermia, but it also showed that he had suffered from blunt force trauma to the head as well. So it reaffirmed the family's suspicions that something was missing from the story that the authorities were telling them. And in talking to Lovely, you can really feel her pain, the pain that she experiences every single day. The not knowing what happened to her son, the fact that the authorities down in Carbondale were, in her opinion, not taking her seriously and treating her as though she was just a grieving family member who didn't really know what she was talking about, even though, you know, she was in the medical field. As the days go by, sure enough, a 22-year-old local man, a man named Gage Bethune, ends up coming forward and being interviewed by police. Gage says that he actually stopped and offered Praveen a ride home the night that Praveen went missing. He said it was cold out and then he felt bad for Praveen 
and so he offered him a ride out of the goodness of his heart. He then tells police that they were driving around for about a half hour or so, and why they were driving around for a half hour is also kind of weird. And then he pulled over, and that he and Praveen got into a fist fight at the side of the road. He said that a police car pulled up behind them, and Praveen got spooked and ran off into the woods, and that that's the last time he ever saw him. And sure enough, there was a police report from that night from that trooper who pulled up on them. And in that police officer's report, he said that Gage had told him that he had just been, quote, robbed by a black guy and that the guy had just run off into the woods. So the officer wrote that he shined his light into the woods for a minute, didn't see anything, and then left. But even with this new information, with this man coming forward and saying that he had hit Praveen, there was never any sort of arrest. And instead, authorities kept insisting that it was an accidental death. While Praveen's family kept pushing and pushing, they attended village hall meetings, they got on the news, they held vigils and protests, and eventually the state's attorney decided to hire a special prosecutor to look at the case. So the case files were then turned over to the family. And Lovely told me that there were items of evidence in the case files that she had never known about before. And one thing especially caught her eye. It was surveillance video from a local business the night that Praveen disappeared, and it shows a man walking across the street in that same area, carrying something rather large in his arms. And there was a note on the video that an officer who had been working the case had written, saying that this needs to be checked out further, although it appeared as though it never was. Well, fast forward a few years, and earlier this year, in 2017, the special prosecutor finally made some progress, and Gage was arrested and charged with murder. I spoke with Lovely the morning that Gage was arrested, and she was relieved. I wouldn't say ecstatic, because there's always the underlying extreme sadness of knowing that she's never going to get her son back. But I think she felt relief that they would finally be getting some answers. So this is a trial that's likely going to take place in 2018. And since it's about only five hours away from where I live, I'm likely going to cover it. I've remained in close contact with Praveen's mom, as well as a family friend of theirs. And so I feel very vested in this case. Like no matter what the outcome is, no matter what happens, I think Praveen's family deserves to know the truth, whether that leads to a conviction or not. And I think that they're just really happy to finally be taken seriously. Because I spent so much time talking to Praveen's mom and family friend and spent so much time getting to know them and getting to know what Praveen was like himself, I can't help but really sympathize with this family, losing their son way too soon and then not having answers. It's heartbreaking. This case is one that has definitely affected me the most and one that I want to follow through to the end and one I know that I will never forget. In January of 2017, the first two episodes of The Minds of Madness were published, and after a couple of weeks, I had successfully harassed my family and friends to all listen, but I hadn't really done any kind of real promotion. After the third episode was published, I decided I needed to find some way to get the word out to people, 
And that's when I discovered this Facebook group called Podcasts We Listen To, which I later discovered also included an actual podcast hosted by the creator of the group, Jeremy Collins. I joined the group right away, posting a link to the few episodes that I'd published. It was at that time that I met Christy Lee from the Canadian True Crime Podcast. She had also just started her show, and we immediately became podcast pals. Both being Canadian, we were two little fish in a great big pond. We began assisting each other with the knowledge and skills that we had to share, and if you listen to our earlier episodes, we did a lot of cross-promoting with each other. And as an immigrated Aussie to Canada, Christy covers a variety of Canadian cases, and recently spoke to us about the one she followed in the news locally as it unfolded. Out of all the cases that I've covered so far, there have been several that have really, really impacted me. The main one was one that really happened close to home, so I kind of lived through it as it was happening. That is the case of the murder of Tim Bosma. Tim Bosma was a happily married father of one in his 30s. He was selling his truck. Two guys arrived to take the truck for a test drive. He went with them and he never returned home. His wife is waiting at home. As the hours passed, she got more and more frantic, wondering, like, where is he? Where are these two guys? She gets a search party together of all of his friends and, and their family, and they go out searching for him, can't find any sign of him anywhere. Later on that night, the police get involved. As I'm going to my commuter train in the morning, there's posters of him and his truck plastered around the GO train station. Unfortunately, within a couple of days, the, the police made an announcement that they were treating it as, as a homicide. We didn't really know anything, as in the public, but later on it was announced that they had arrested two people in relation to it. One of them was a guy called Dallin Millard, and the other was a person called Mark Smitch. Dallin Millard came from a very wealthy aviation family in Toronto, quite well known, and he was basically this spoiled little rich kid. He wanted a truck that was more fuel efficient than the one he'd been taking, and he decided that rather than paying for it, he wanted the thrill of actually stealing the truck. They actually went for several test drives of other trucks that had been advertised on the internet and for various reasons decided that these ones weren't the trucks that they wanted to take. And then finally it came to Tim Bosma and they decided that Tim Bosma's truck was the one they wanted but instead of just stealing the truck, they killed him. Months before, Dallin Millard had commissioned a massive large-scale incinerator that was supposed to be used for disposing of the carcasses of large animals. The remains of Tim Bosma were actually found in that incinerator on his family farm.
Tim Bosma was shot with a gun before he was put into the incinerator. What a horrible, horrible thing for his family to have found out. Over a truck. Over a stupid truck. That Dylan Millard likely could have afforded to purchase. In fact, he paid more for the custom-built incinerator than what he did for the truck itself. It went to trial, and we still don't know exactly which of them it was that committed that final act because they both blamed each other. Him and and Mark Smitch went to court, and they were both found guilty of first-degree murder. But the story doesn't end there. Before the trial, they were both charged with the murder of... Dylan Millard's ex-girlfriend, who went missing several months before Tim Bosma did. The trial has just finished here in Ontario, and the jury is actually deliberating as we speak. So I'll be doing an update on what happened with this one too, as to whether or not they were found guilty of first-degree murder on this charge. It's really a tangled web that starts off with the disappearance of this poor, innocent father who decides to sell his truck on the internet. It really, really did affect me, both because, you know, it was in my hometown where I live and also because it could happen to anyone. It's really made me think about the dangers of selling things online, I guess, and and going off with strangers. I'm not sure why Tim Bosma had to die. I would say it was more for the thrill of it. That's definitely the case that has affected me the most. A few months in, and I started getting to know more and more of my fellow true crime podcasters. And that is when I met Lainey from the True Crime Fan Club. I'd listened to her show in the early days, and she quickly became a good friend and encouragement to us. If you haven't heard her show yet, you'll recognize her voice from reading the disclaimer at the beginning of our show. I will never forget when she was at CrimeCon in 2017. She called me up on the phone while she was standing in Podcaster's Row filling me in on everyone who was there and everything that was going on, trying her best to make me feel a part of it, because she knew how much I really wanted to be there. We now refer to her as our pod sister. When we asked Lainey to tell us about one of the cases that had a personal impact on her, she decided to tell us about one that had actually happened in the area near where she grew up. Out of all the cases that I've covered, the case that has stuck with me the most is the Wiley Axe murder. That's a case that occurred in Wiley, Texas. At the time, it was a really small North Texas suburb, and it had about 3,700 people. It was a country town. And there were three players involved, Candy Montgomery and Alan and Betty Gore. Candy and Alan basically had an affair, and... Nobody really knows how Betty found out about the affair, but she supposedly confronted Candy, and Candy 
ended up getting an axe from the Gore garage and basically hacking Betty to death. The surprising fact about this whole case, besides the death of Betty Gore, which is tragic, is that Candy Montgomery was found not guilty. And she eventually went on to lead a somewhat normal life. She's a counselor to at-risk youth. And Alan moved on with his life as well. Wiley is actually my hometown. I was born there. And I remember seeing an article in the paper when it was the 20th anniversary or the 30th anniversary of the murder. And I thought, wow, this is insane. This woman admitted to attacking Betty and got off scot-free. She was found innocent of the crime. I think because it was in a area that I know very well, you know, I, I grew up in that area. I was really surprised because Collin County, which is the county that Wiley is located, is very conservative. And I thought at the time that, of course, she'd be found guilty. And I think maybe today she would be, but in 1978, when the murder occurred, she was found not guilty. And it just still surprises me how everybody moved on. Alan got remarried. Candy moved to Georgia and got a license in counseling. And nobody talks about it. And to this day, she refuses to give any interviews. so funny about Candy and Alan's affair is that it was very boring. They created a list of rules that they had to keep and stand by. If if a rule was broken, they would end the affair. And several of their rules were broken because their biggest thing was they didn't want to be emotionally attached to each other. But what you found out in the end is that they really were. Uh, Maybe not so much on Alan's side, but Candy definitely was attached and in love with Alan. And the motel, it's called the Como Motel. It's really, it was really close to Alan's job. That's why they picked it. And I pass by that motel on a daily basis. So I see it. And every time I see it now, I just think that that's where Candy and Alan sat down and wrote out the rules for their affair. For the verdict and how I feel about it, I I was really confused and surprised. Again, because... Collin County is very, very conservative, so I would have thought that here's this woman, even though she's a Christian woman, they were both very involved in their church, that she sinned in her marriage, basically, and so, of course, you know, the conservative jurors, the conservative judge, lawyers, etc., were going to do their best to make sure she went away for life for Betty's murder. But instead, Candy's defense was basically... I went into a fugue state because of a trauma I experienced when I was six years old. Basically, I cut my foot and there was blood everywhere. And the nurse kept telling me to, you know, quiet down. And she kept saying, shh, be quiet. And Betty, as after, you know, after I hacked her 53 times, looked up at me and shushed me. And then I lost it. And so that's why I I murdered her. And the jury believed it. 
said she was innocent of her crime, which she wasn't. I disagree 100% with the verdict. I think that the way that everybody moved on after Betty died kind of proved Betty's point that nobody cared that she was around or nobody cared that she was in their life anymore because as soon as the verdict was rendered, maybe within six months to a year or three months, actually, I think it was shorter than that, Alan remarried somebody. It was a next-door neighbor. To me, it's really upsetting for Betty's memory that everybody was able to move on and live this, you know, normal and great life. And all we have is a memory of, of Betty where she's this emotional wreck of a wife and a mother and who desperately wants to get pregnant so she can keep her husband. And it's just very, very sad to me. few months passed until I was finally able to convince Beck to get involved with the show. As some of you might know, Beck is a TV producer, writer, and editor, and I knew if I could get her involved, she'd really be able to help me improve the show. Working a full-time job meant my only free time to work on the show was in the evenings and weekends. My time with Beck was decreasing as the show grew. I suppose she could have asked me to quit the podcast, but instead, She knew how much it meant to me and decided to start helping. With the two of us working together, we soon became acquainted with all the podcasters I had admired as a listener. And it was around that time that I got connected with Mike and Gibby from True Crime All the Time. I enjoyed the banter format of their show, as I had enjoyed Gen Y and True Crime Garage. In fact, I liked it so much that I even tried to record with Beck one time to see if the two of us could make an episode with both of us hosting. It's not an exaggeration when I say that experiment was a total disaster. Similar to Justin and Aaron, and the captain and Nick, Mike and Gibby really work well at delivering their show together, and their personalities really play off one another. When we asked them to tell us about a case that really stuck with them, they brought up a case that had taken a physical and emotional toll on them. I think for us, the case that we covered that affected us the most has to be the murder of little eight-year-old Sandra Cantu. Absolutely. Drove a stake right through my heart. I know that this case stayed with you for a long, long time, much longer than probably any other case we've done. Yeah, it really did. Mentally, it it had an impact on me and even my physical health. I didn't feel like eating. just didn't. Sandra Cantu, this little, precious, eight-year-old girl, just living her life. Everybody loved her. She's living in a trailer park with her family. And Sandra goes missing. And it was about nine, ten days from the day that she went missing until her body was found. 
her body was actually found by a man that was working at a dairy farm and he found her body in a drainage pond inside of a suitcase. And then you get into the investigation And what is shocking is who the murderer turns out to be. It's like a movie, you know, when you think he might know, and then you're like, what? Really? There's a lot of unsavory characters that police looked at. They interview a woman by the name of Melissa Huckabee a Sunday school teacher and obviously she says she doesn't know anything about it and then when the details come out about what actually happened to Sandra Cantu it's gruesome there's no other way to say it not only what she did to this poor little girl but why she says she did it what she did to this little girl, just reliving it right now is just making my stomach turn. It just had such a big impact because little kids, they're so trustworthy. They don't see evil. And for this woman to take advantage of this little girl, to be a teacher, to be a Sunday school teacher, to be a friend of the family destroying this little girl and aftermath is terrible and then the trial and the stuff that she says during the trial some of her statements honestly I just wanted to strangle her we had audio from the trial some of that coming directly from Melissa Huckabee and to hear her it's sickening. Yeah, I don't think anybody comes away listening to this case being sympathetic with her oh, at all. No, I, I remember after the episode, all of the social media, and obviously you're going to get that anytime a child is murdered, but this was to a level that we've never seen either before this episode or since. I was definitely disappointed in humanity. It just really hit hard. It did. It really did. Once Beck got involved, she really dove into networking and started up our Facebook discussion group, along with connecting with other hosts. At some point, she'd managed to connect with the lovely Rosanna Fitton. She's the co-creator of an amazing UK true crime podcast called They Walk Among Us, hosted by her spouse, Ben. This husband-wife team has created a podcast, achieving some pretty incredible milestones this year. They work so similar to us, that we've actually been referred to as their Canadian counterparts. A huge compliment to us, as their show is so good, we constantly strive to deliver a product as fine-tuned as theirs. 
aside from the brilliant delivery of each and every episode, the compassion for the victims is always something that is very evident. Ben recalls one story in particular that really touched him. The case that certainly impacted me the most was Season 2, Episode 7. It's about the life and death of Bijan Ibrahimi. He was born in the late 60s in Iran. And he probably didn't have the easiest start in life. Mother had a stroke and father had cancer. Eventually passed away, so he's on his own and decides to move to the UK. Once he was here, it was just the difficulties he suffered, the amount of abuse he went through. He'd be called cockroach. It was just terrible. But when he reported all this abuse to the police, they just passed him off and said, you're an annoyance, and really didn't take what he was saying seriously. And eventually, in July 2013, around some flats where he lived, he was getting quite upset about the abuse he suffered, so he was trying to film what was going on. So he captures all of this footage of all of this abuse that's being thrown at him, and this Lee James comes into his house, and this footage, the police have, but instead of arresting Lee James for racist abuse, Bijan Ebrahimi gets arrested and taken to a police station, held overnight, because they're suggesting that he was being belligerent, wasn't following the instructions from officers that turned up to the scene. They say to him, you know, you need to be careful, and you need to stop it. And it's just like, are you absolutely crazy? He's got evidence of all this abuse and eventually he's returned back to his flat and all of the residents that see him are under the assumption that he's the culprit here when it's thus just not the case. Late one night he's going out to water some hanging baskets near his flat and he just gets assaulted and then beaten to death and his body's set alight. He suffered so much. You just see it's hundreds of times he's begging for help and I think it hit me so hard because you sort of see the seeds of bullying. It just chips away at him and it's reading through his life at a lot of the court documents and his mental state and it's just when nobody steps in to help it's the worst thing to see just want to give someone a helping hand to tell them it's okay and not a single person did that for him he suffered so much discrimination from the police threats to his life all this racial abuse criminal damage to his property and just it wasn't none of it was processed correctly or even reported as a crime eventually they apologized to Bijan's family but it's like that doesn't bring him back if a decent job was done to actually investigate it properly, he'd still be here. It's one of those cases that you research and read about and you just can't shake it off. You keep coming back to it. You move on and you're writing and recording other cases, but it's this one just sits at the back of your, your mind for such a long time. And I think it just stuck with me so much. Just so terrible.
Last but not least, I want to introduce you to the moms. We've tried our best to pay it forward and help out new and emerging podcasters as our show has grown. Passing on knowledge we've gained in our journey, along with a ton of encouragement, we try and reach out to shows we enjoy and offer any advice we can give, sometimes through a phone call at 3 a.m. in the morning because we didn't know what time zone you're in, as our friend CK from Mirths and Monsters never fails to remind us about. And that's how we met Mandy and Melissa from the true crime podcast called Moms and Murder. Not only do they put out a great podcast, but they are an absolute delight to interact with. They never fail to make us laugh and are also very active in our Facebook discussion group and on social media. They too take an opportunity to support and promote other shows, which is a trait that we really admire and respect. As much as we've tried to help them, they've been a tremendous support to us. Mandy even designed the artwork for this episode. They are an extremely thoughtful, talented, and funny couple of moms that we've really enjoyed getting to know. Although the show tends to be on the lighter side of true crime, they don't shy away from telling some pretty gruesome and tragic stories. You'll now hear them talk about one particular case they covered that made them realize what types of cases they couldn't ever cover again. The story that has impacted Melissa and I the most that we have covered would be the Diane Schuler case. Just a really heartbreaking case, I think, for us to cover. Mandy and I, when we researched this story, we decided from then on out we would not really do stories involving loss of life of children because it just, it was so senseless and just seemed so avoidable. And so it's one that kind of haunts you. When we were done with it, you just felt gross. Just was a painful story. Diane and her husband had decided to go camping with their family. They brought along their young daughter and son and their three nieces. As they left the campsite, everything was normal. The husband took off with the dog, and Diane loaded up the children. They stopped at McDonald's, played on the playground, had snacks, stopped at a gas station. There's surveillance video of her walking in, and everything appears incredibly normal. But as she got back on the road, something changed, and there's these panicked calls that the nieces are making to their their mom and saying there's something wrong with Aunt Diane, which is where the name of the documentary comes in. They're just terrified, and and she's not making a lot of sense when they're calling her, and she ends up leaving her phone on the side of the interstate and ends up running into another vehicle going the wrong way down the interstate for over a mile. And so at the end of this, you're just kind of left wondering what actually happened there. Did she have a mental breakdown, you know, was she drinking the entire time? They found vodka in the car, but they claimed, the husband claimed that could have been from something else. There was no witnesses that had seen her drinking or using drugs or anything like that. In fact, it was just the opposite, that everybody who had seen her that day had said that she was acting completely normal. So I think just trying to wrap your brain around how it even happened and and trying to make sense of it when the people who actually interacted with her that day they didn't really back up the fact that she did have a very high blood alcohol level and she did have uh, THC in her system and there was really no 
nobody really could you know, confirm that with eyewitness accounts of seeing her. So that for me was the, what I struggled with the most. I just, I want to make sense of everything. And it's really hard whenever there's just no logic. There's no, there are no facts that really support what happened. There's just so much loss of life there. And then no one really knows. Was it a medical condition? Was it a combination of drugs and alcohol? Did she have a stroke on the way? There's just no evidence to really support any of those things and any kind of evidence that was there that could show some negligence on her part the family was very quick to deny with lots of cases you never know who the perpetrator is or or the person responsible for a crime but this one seems worse because you do know who's responsible but you never really understand why She seemed to love her family and love her kids and her nieces, and it doesn't add up. If you would like to hear more about the stories in this episode, we've provided links in our show notes. Also, we're excited to announce the launch of our new website, which you can find at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. Wow, how incredible was that? To hear from hosts from some of the most fantastic true crime podcasts out there, And speaking from such a personal point of view, I found it so fascinating and I really enjoyed speaking to each and every one of them. I want to thank all of the hosts for taking the time to speak with me, for sharing your experiences, offering advice, and for just being really kind people. We are both so blown away. I also want to wish all of our listeners, supporters, and people we've grown to call friends and family a wonderful holiday season, and a prosperous new year. We'd also like to say a special thank you to all the people who have been helping us out behind the scenes. It's these people that really help us balance the load and keep us grounded with their positivity and enthusiasm on a daily basis. Assisting with our social media, Jordan Lemons, and now new to the team to support her, is Krista Mendez. Our Facebook moderators, the Karens, Karen number one, Karen Siefker, Karen number two, Karen Rodrigue, Jason Abercrombie, Lauren Burke, Ron Anglin, and Andy Chidlow. And while everyone's gearing up for Christmas, we've had a busy team of people doing a lot of detective work for the cases we'll be bringing to you in the new year. As I mentioned earlier, we've been calling them the Cleaners. The following people have been especially busy. Kate Morris, Tay Davis, Laura Urquhart, Stephanie Sabin, Megan Quintana, Stephanie Moore, Brittany Martinez, Christine Elizabeth, Rachel Wood, and Chris Cogswell. I want to say a special thank you to all of the podcasters that assisted in this episode. And please, 
If you haven't heard these podcasts before, I really encourage you to go check them out. Because if you like The Minds of Madness, you'll definitely like the shows that inspired me to create it. Here's wishing you a safe and happy holidays. We've actually got another treat for you. I know, like that wasn't enough, right? Well, we do. And what it is, are some very special holiday greetings from just a few of the amazing hosts we've formed friendships with over the year. We're so grateful for the kindness and support they've shown to us. And without further ado... Hey, my name is Paul, and I'm the host of the Varmints Podcast, and I don't celebrate Christmas because, you know, some people don't celebrate Christmas. Maybe you do. Maybe you're a Wiccan and you're celebrating the birth of the sun god, or you're just now coming out of your Hanukkah fried food coma, or maybe you do Kwanzaa or some other thing. Maybe you just stay home and watch Netflix. I don't know. I don't know what you're up to over there. But whatever you do between December 25th and January 1st, do it safely. Enjoy the people you're doing it with. That sounded kind of like a euphemism, but you know what I mean. And have a great time. And here's to a semi-decent 2018 without too many celebrity deaths. Okay? Okay. Bye. This is Dina Marie, the host of the Twisted Philly podcast. I'd like to wish Beck, Tyler, and all the Minds of Madness listeners a happy, healthy, and joyous holiday season that isn't at all twisted. Beck and Tyler, I hope you and your family have an absolutely beautiful Christmas. You are two of the sweetest, coolest, and most talented people in podcasting. And one of the blessings for me in 2017 was getting to know you both a little bit better. Best of luck for a successful and exciting 2018. Hello, this is Jeremy from Podcasts We Listen To, where I interview your favorite podcast hosts each week. I hope that you are having a fantastic Christmas, and I hope you have a wonderful new year. Be safe, and we'll see you next Wednesday. This is Jerry from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and I just want to wish each and every one of you Minds of Madness listeners a very happy and safe holidays. Hey, it's Vanessa with The Cleaning of John Doe, wishing you and your family a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Stay awesome, guys. Hello, this is Ood from the Occulte Veritatis Podcast. Just wishing everyone out there a happy holiday and a Merry Christmas. Hey guys, Sam Culper from Breakers Podcast here. Sammy and I wanted to remind everyone that Santa's watching and to have a safe and happy holiday season. We'll see you next year. Hey y'all, Samantha here from the Hidden Staircase Podcast. Wishing you all a Merry Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and a very happy new year. And everyone, please be good to each other. Hi, this is Tara Saraban. And Barney Black from the Bloody Murder Podcast. We'd like to wish all you listeners a happy and safe holiday season. Cheers. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly of Southern Fried True Crime. Wishing y'all a wonderful holiday season and best wishes for a happy new year. This is the fall line. We want to wish you a happy holidays and a great new year. Hey Tyler, Beck, Jordan and the extended Minds of Madness family. It's Broad from Fallon True Crime here. I just want to take this opportunity to wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, 
and all the best for the new year. To throw another shrimp on the barbie, crack open a couple of tinnies, tuck into some pudding, and have yourselves an awesome Chrissy. The Gone Cold Podcast wishes you and yours a safe and happy holiday season. This is CK from Mirths and Monsters. Just wanted to say a happy holidays to all the maddies and everyone associated with the show. Have a cracking time. Bye-bye. Jessica from the Asian Madness Podcast would like to wish you all the best during this holiday season. And may you all have a wonderful new year. This is Ali from Insight. And this is Charlie, also from Insight. We were considering singing some Christmas carols to you. But we'd probably pronounce all the words wrong. So we'll just say happy holidays and may you have a wonderful 2018. Hi, this is Roseanne from the California Dreaming Podcast. And I just wanted to take this time to wish you all a joyous holiday season and a very, very, very happy new year. Hi, I'm Cambo from True Crime Island, wishing everyone a very happy festive season on behalf of all the islanders. Hey everyone, this is Zach from Mysterious. I just want to wish you all a happy holidays, whichever one you choose to celebrate. Uh, and my gift to you is that you get a whole nother year of the Minds of Madness. Happy holidays. Enjoy your gift. Hi, this is Eileen. And Colleen from Misconduct. And we wanted to wish everyone a happy holidays, however you celebrate it. And a great new year. Hello, listeners of Minds of Madness. This is Jordan, host of the Nighttime Podcast. To all of you, Tyler and Beck, I want to wish you all a happy holiday. Hey, it's Chase from Cop and Crew in the morning on WLINY. Every weekday morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we want to wish you and yours a very happy new year, a Merry Christmas, and thank you so much for allowing us to be part of your family. Have yourself a Merry Minds of Madness Christmas From your pal Karen from Stat Yeah, that's that's all I've got. Love you guys. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. This is Jace and Haley from Murder Road Trip. We're here to wish you happy holidays and a safe new year. Cheers. Hey everyone, Jamie here from the Murderish Podcast. Here's wishing you and yours a murderishly Merry Christmas. But don't go and murder anyone. Okay, let me try this again. Here's wishing you and yours a happy non-homicidal holiday. Cheers! Hey, this is Esther from Once Upon a Crime. Wishing you a happy and safe new year. Hey guys, this is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing all you Minds of Badness listeners a very Merry Christmas and all the very best wishes for 2018. Thanks very much, guys. Catch you soon. Hi, this is George and Tawny Plattis from the Dirty Bits podcast. And we'd like to wish you a very happy holidays, whether you've been naughty or nice. (laughs) December 25th, 2017. This is Robin Warder of the Trail and Cold Podcast, advising you to enjoy that date. So I guess you could say, have yourself a happy holidays. Hey everybody, this is Justin from Mysterious Circumstances, wishing everybody a very Merry Christmas and a very safe New Year. It's been nearly 30 Christmases since Clara Pockets last sat around a tree with her four beautiful children, opening presents, having some laughs, and spreading yuletide cheer. Hold your loved ones close, because you never know when they might just done disappear. 
Merry Christmas from all of us at Dunn Disappeared with me, John David Booter. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E